Hi, and welcome to Knowledge Counts, a podcast of the Canadian Institute of Quantity Surveyors. I'm Wendy Hobbs. Today we're speaking with Alex Marsh about value engineering. Alex, tell us a little bit about your background and your company QSSI. Well, thanks for asking. Um, We're a full-service PQS firm that specialises in a, a number of key areas, such as project loan monitoring, construction contract authoring, risk assessment, um, procedural construction advice, forensic construction accounting, expert witness, whether that's testimony or or reporting. Um, we also work in insurance and a bit more recently reserve fund studies as well. I incorporated my company in 2015 and we've managed to grow quite well uh, in the challenging environment we've uh, we've experienced since by embracing pretty much a bit of a scattergun approach, um, diversity in all the available projects that are out there, while offering a great personalised service to all our clients. Some examples of this diversity include setting up a, an estimated department for a local Calgary construction company using best practice from both the UK and Canada. And we apply that to uh, a lot of the things we do, flying out to Toronto for a long-running arbitration or carrying out blind value of working place and cost-complete estimates for a 15,000 square foot heritage home in Vancouver. On that one, it was a multi-million dollar project that was shut down by a tree, which is uh, Vancouver for you. And we were tasked with tracking down material prices as based on interior design specs. So that was really different. So what is value engineering? So most people think value engineering is the same thing as simply cost cutting or finding cheaper materials to do the same job as the original materials that are specified, uh, whether that's by an architect or or by, uh, by a designer. Um, Now, while this is certainly part of the equation, there are really two main types of value engineering. Firstly, there are savings against capex, or the capital cost of construction of the project. Um, That's the cost you incur when you you physically build something. Secondly, there are the savings on the life cycle, or operational costs of a building. Such life cycle considerations include things like solar panels, or specifying a 35-year roofing product rather than a 25-year roofing product. It all depends on the anticipated use of the building and, perhaps more importantly, the anticipated length of use of a building. Um, One thing I'd experienced in the UK was public or social housing being constructed to an extremely high standard, much, much greater than typical multifamily residential housing sites that are being erected for sale to the general public. you know, where you buy your house from the, the builder or the developer. Uh, and it really causes you to think laterally about the process of, of why you'd specify a, a solid oak door in a building where people are essentially living there for free uh, on, on government handouts. Um, why would you specify a really high-end tap fixture? And the answer is really quite simple, because the high-end products require much less uh, maintenance and make it much more difficult for vandalism to have much of an effect. Um, Unfortunately, that's a big consideration in in those kind of projects. This is essentially, though, an example of value engineering. The solid oak door costs three times as much as a typical panel door, but will withstand much more abuse over a greater length of time. Um, When we talk about VE at QSSI, though, we're talking about the functional cost analysis method, which is a very specific part of VE. The cost is the actual amount incurred in the delivery of a project or a specific product within a project. And the value relates more to what the performance of the product is worth to the customer. Um, So specifically, this definition of value is extremely important. A purely architectural design team might not perceive a certain product feature to be valuable. However, if it's important to the customer, 
then the feature must be regarded as having a high value and being necessary to the overall build. We also use the outline for value management during our VE workshops with our clients. The five main steps are actually identical to the five main stages of creative problem solving. First, we have to define and understand the nature of the problem. We then collaboratively generate alternative ideas as to how to solve that identified problem. Then we evaluate the practicality of the generated ideas. We then develop and test the ideas which we scored and we rank them uh, against a set of uh, scores to be the most, uh, which are the most applicable. We decide upon and implement those solutions that make the best sense. So effectively we're, we're generating a, a spreadsheet of different ideas, uh, grade, rank those ideas and then execute them. So I'd like to use the example to kind of explain this of an illuminated wardrobe. For most people this might be considered something that's a bit extravagant, um, but to the one specific client who wants it, he needs to be able to see the shirt and tie he selects in the morning, uh, while his wife and new baby sleeps in the same room maybe. Uh, and the rest of the room needs to remain pitch black so that they can, you know, stay stay sleeping. The value to the client might be completely priceless, you know, <laughs> marital harmony and sleeping babies. Um, but the actual physical cost may run into several hundred dollars. And so for anyone outside that situation, it might not provide any additional perceived value to the actual function of the wardrobe, which is essentially just storage of clothes. So that's a good example of why uh, value is, is a very personal thing. Another example might be the change from plain old stucco to an EFIS system on a commercial building. Hypothetically, an EFIS system may cost, say, 50000 more than a simple stucco application. However, this additional upfront cost would likely save on the heating bills. Even a modest saving of $5,000 a year would equate to $125,000 saving over a 25-year period without accounting for inflation or fuel price or taxation increases. And that's where life cycle kind of kicks into the VE process. Do you get much pushback during the process? It, we, we do, we do. Um, one of our architect friends on one of our current contracts is constantly complaining we're trying to cut the arms off his baby. And, and we absolutely love that phrase, we find it hilarious. Typically it comes around when during the design meetings we're discussing elements as, you know, simplifying the roof or... Uh, reducing the expense of glazing in the building, etc., etc. It's never our intent to hack and slash at the design scope or, or intent overall, and uh, we've kind of won that battle with that particular architect. Uh, we, we've, we've discussed it very closely with him, and it's about getting buy-in to the process um, with certain uh, stakeholders. Specifically, the building I'm referencing actually started out as a timber structure, and as such, it had a really complex timber roof with, you know, peaks, troughs, hidden valleys. Plus, it had about four different pitches to the uh, to the actual roof itself. Now, that's dead cheap to construct in timber. But uh, unfortunately, during the design phase, the building hit a snag with the building inspector, um, and we had to shift from timber to NC steel construction. While we pushed through a simplification to the roof in general, the most egregious thing we did to the design was to replace a gable roof with a hip one. And that was done purely for cost-saving purposes. Um, however, we had managed to value-engineer the windows to the point where they were roughly the same price as exterior cladding. So uh, we kind of uh, allowed the architect to do his own thing with how much uh, natural light he wanted to let into the project. Um, and they actually increased that to let in you know, the really impressive view of the mountains where this project is located. 
through working closely with all the parties, we've also engendered a lot of trust in the process. And we continue to work with the same architects and designers on several other projects as well. As part of our raw cost savings drive, we're currently set to bring in a number of products from China directly, including an alternative to Rockwell, which is actually more than double the kilograms per meter cubed, which works great for architects who need to specify this material for increasing the sound attenuation or, or decreasing the, uh, uh, the actual decibel travel through a, through a wall. But it's around half the price of domestically sourced Rockwell insulation. Um, for another of our prestigious clients, we've spent the last year saving them about $800,000 through the application of uh, a very detailed VE process, and we've tried to make it a fun experience for all. We've held smart exercises to drive stakeholder engagement and buy into the VE process, because we don't believe in simply achieving the building functions cost-effectively, uh, but instead we need to ensure that it's communicated to all parties the shared objectives of why the building needs to be you know, uh, cheaper, perhaps. <laughs> Cutting through that psychobabble, though, really, uh, it means that through a process we employ, we ensure that the architect is themselves thinking of methods of achieving their intended design from a more cost-effective perspective when progressing the initial design in the first place, rather than us having to alter design, reduce scope or specifications to meet a budget that is potentially unrealistic. And um, I suppose managing expectations is, is part of the job of the PQS, generally. I mean, it, it's, it's in all things we do. And it certainly applies to mortgage monitoring, insurance, expert witness. It definitely applies to VE as well. And we're often in the position of telling a client he can't have what he wants for a price that he's willing to pay. <laughs> so how many clients choose to utilize value engineering? Well, I, I like to think that value engineering is one of our most important products and while it's true we actually perform a little bit of VE for every single project we're involved with uh, we typically don't get paid for our efforts <laughs> but it really sets the groundwork for repeat business if we you know go that extra step we're finding that often the clients that need our help the most are the ones who refuse to pay for the necessary services to actually reap the benefits um, and what I mean by this is in today's market with downward pressure on budgets and increased necessity to save money on a project PQS and other professional services can often be one of the first things cut in the budget, often in total detriment to the cost viability of the overall project. So that's frustrating. <laughs> um, in Canada, generally it's been my experience, there aren't many clients that really know the true value of a PQS uh, and the services that we can offer to help manage risk through contracts, manage costs during tendering uh, or, or, or during the site process or ensure that best practice is followed. When it comes to value engineering, the end goal of the process is not always to reduce the end cost of construction, given that other processes can be carried out too in relation to increasing the actual utility of the project. Whether that means achieving a higher performance of the space, or if it means increasing the capital cost of construction to reduce maintenance costs. To specifically answer the question though, we don't get many of our clients requesting value engineering at all. While it's possible many of them have never even heard of the process, we, we feel it's more likely that there's a, a general disassociation between the client and the use of project professionals to their full potential on any given project. So can you give us a specific example of the types of products you focus on during the process? When we have been engaged to perform VE, it's generally where a client can't meet their budget and retain their intended use or size of a building, and they're looking for a way to achieve both. QSSI even believe in the VE process to the extent that we've offered a free VE assessment of any project, um, with our pay structure based solely upon savings made from the agreed fixed budget. 
and we always take them, but only a few opportunities where we really get it to pull out all the stops and perform value engineering to the full extent. So the VE process overall is not everything to do with uh, product selection. That's definitely a component of it. Um, I suppose as an example, windows can often be the single most expensive component of a building envelope, uh, certainly when we're discussing certain types of commercial glazing. Optimal window selection is typically defined as providing the best compromise between cost and energy performance, but not reducing the overall lifespan of the product through specifying a high maintenance solution. Um, there's lots of options such as low E, gas, uh, insulated spaces, and all of these are readily available. But it's our job as a PQS to identify which of these are the best price point for the desired performance. As an example, were we discussing a single family home, the use of all the available options such as triple glazing, low E, glass and argon fill would be pretty redundant because the heat loss from a property of that type is often larger from the walls once you cross a certain threshold of cost for the windows. Typical high solar gain triple glazed windows actually gather more heat than they lose uh, and good windows can perform better than an insulated wall nowadays. When it comes to selecting the product though, most clients are led purely by the architect to specify the product for them. But it's actually quite rare that the architect will select a product as based on its cost advantages or, or, or that kind of profile. While architects can often be up to speed with several of the latest technologies, many others will specify products as based on their last successful project of a similar kind. While most projects still lack input from a PQS generally, um, we find that any feedback that architects gain on cost is pretty much anecdotal and related to their own personal experience. When performing VE, it's specifically the job of the PQS to ensure that the desired functionality, use and value of the product is matched with the funds available to the client. While it may not sound all that relevant, certain buildings have extreme regulations governing pathing, the process of walking from one place to another, within a hospital for example. During a more general review process we performed for a hospital, it was technically called VE, <laughs> um, we had to ensure that the cost of construction was optimised while also considering the routing from the elevators to the various departments, the emergency access and egress points, and also the amount of natural light that was allowed to penetrate to corridors and other high-use areas. In this instance, a simple four-storey box with centralised elevators actually worked much better than any of the original designs that the architects came up with. Eventually, our proposed simplifications yielded savings of hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, impacted such systems as uh, heating, cooling, uh, even the battery packs that were being used for, for backups, um, and significant improvements to the KPIs. Overall, it all contributed to winning the bid for the project for that particular client. On the same hospital project, we value engineered the HVAC systems, which are notoriously difficult in hospital, due to the requirement for constant air change and the huge amount of redundant RTUs which are switched into use when maintenance is carried out. We recommended the use of a dual-pole RTU, which is simple as having two fans on an RTU, which is like blowing and sucking air over a radiator, meaning that only one fan at a time actually needs to be disabled during maintenance, um, and the unit itself is still in operation during typical maintenance procedures. So the saving there to the value engineering or the cost saving was all the redundant RTUs, they were eliminated from the project. More recently we've even brought in some toilet and faucet samples from China. Um, all but one of the toilets arrived intact. <laughs> um, they're actually rather good for the money, given the unique design wanted by the client, but we recommended paying more for the domestically Canadian sourced units, 
due to the logistics issues instead. Some VE is still trial and error, but we really enjoy the continuous learning aspects of the job anyway. How do you bring life cycle into value engineering? Bringing life cycle into the equation uh, is really important when it comes to maintenance and replacement of materials. Um, specifically, I talked previously about whether you select a 35-year roof or a, or a 25-year roof. And it depends on the design life cycle of the project, how long is it intended to be used for. Um, in a building that's only got a very short fixed life cycle cost, uh, such as some government buildings are only intended to be occupied for a 20-year period, it may not make sense to specify a 35-year roof, because the reality is a 25-year roof will last approximately 19 years before showing any wear whatsoever. If you're really lucky, that 25-year roof can get to, to 25 years, <laughs> which is actually you know less less likely than, than it sounds. Um, but it comes down to doing a simple calculation. If you've got a 100-year life cycle of the building, how many of what type of product is going to be best to create that uh, performance design that you're intending? So if we've got a 100-year life cycle, you've, the simple thing you think is, okay, well, 35, 35, 35. But the fact is a 35-year roof costs twice that of a 25-year roof. So we can actually get away with four 25-year roofs rather than three 35-year roofs. So when you're considering it from the whole project perspective, you can select the product that meets the client's design intent as opposed to uh, kind of figuring that out. Earlier, Alex mentioned scoring and ranking of the ideas. We asked how he does that while keeping in mind the client's priorities. That's, that's, that's a real interesting question. It really does depend whether there's defined KPIs, if there's key performance indicators. It depends how involved we are with the project. If we are one of the key uh, people involved with the project from the beginning, then we've generally got to know the client and what the client is actually looking for. And it's often not bottom dollar. Not really. They'll say it is every time, <laughs> um, but in reality, it can be a mixture of a different series of, of things that they need. They need the performance first, and then they need the cheapest price. So typically applying those scoring uh, mechanisms, it's, it's an analysis of what the client wants and then ranking those ideas. It can also be a collaborative process that you actually do during um, uh, a VE exercise, which uh, it sounds a bit like role play when I say it that way, but um, effectively some of the VE meetings are sitting down with um, up to 10 design designers on the project. Uh, one that I've performed recently, we've had everybody there from the architect to the structural engineer to the, to the civil engineer. And then you just think outside the box and pair each person off with somebody else who's maybe the complete opposite. Um, let's pair off AV with you know structural. That makes sense or rather it shouldn't. <laughs> um, and then it's it's really a very uh, collaborative process where everybody brainstorms, comes up with their own ideas. Oh, I did this project 40 years ago where, you know, we didn't have to do this, we had to do this a different way, or, you know, civil engineer is saying, hey, you got a lot of rock, let's sleeve rather than blast, etc., etc. Um, and then when those ideas come together, we can either put them on a board or more recently slap them into a laptop <laughs> Uh, and then discuss them and rank them with people around the group actually voting on them. So um, typically the first process, once we've got that list, is to cost them and to figure out, okay, well, this could save X and this could save Y. And then a lot of the ranking would potentially be related to the potential cost saving and the complexity. 
how difficult is it to implement this suggestion? So you've got me curious. Tell us about the tree that shut down the project. The tree. So um, Vancouver, uh, they have some wonderful bylaws. And this was actually a Heritage Homes project. So in these situations, the Heritage Home itself has to be protected. Um, it should be reused in the construction. But also the trees are really important. <laughs> and on that project, there was 193 heritage trees. Now, it doesn't mean they were very big. It just means that there was a tree that pre-existed on the site and you're not allowed to interfere with it in any way. And there's actually, um, I think it's something like a 15-foot exclusion zone around every single tree. So what had happened in this project, they'd, uh, they'd been doing a new connection to the storm line and they put a manhole in about 12 feet from the base of a tree. <laughs> so, of course, along comes the inspector and shuts the whole project down, which is crazy. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's policy. I think they're still in negotiations as to how to restart the project. We actually we came in to do a value of working place assessment on the project. A wonderful, wonderful project, actually. <laughs> it's a wonderful. I, I was wondering around the basement taking photographs and I'd been dumped there at about 3 p.m. and so there was no electric light in the building and there was a I don't know it must have been a 20 car garage um, in the new foundation and it was full of material but of course pitch black so I'm stepping with the flash of my camera <laughs> Poof, step Poof, step <laughs> um, yeah that was that was a little bit spooky but yeah, it was uh, it was a really really crazy project. We loved being involved in those high end weird things where, you know, we actually got referred by two other major contractor PQS firms who said they couldn't do it. They said nobody could value it. And um, after our involvement, uh, the first question we were asked was, "You've been colluding with the with the with the developer. That's the same number as they told us it was worth." And I said, well, we don't know who the developer is. You didn't tell us that. We just performed all our processes as we would perform them normally. Um, and the second question was value engineering. <laughs> uh, the client said to me, well, I'm really frustrated. Is it really going to cost me $7 million to finish it? And I said, well, yes, if you go with the design specs that you've got. We've gone out and we've now sourced all of the material pricing on your project from the design that's that's in place. And they've designed, or they've specified, a marble that is two inches thick to line your swimming pool. And it's $380 a foot. That's You can build a house for that, I said. <laughs> Cut that down to a tile and you save $2 million on the project. But like that's like I say, you, you add in VE to, to anything you see and that's simple cost cutting, really. I mean... We don't charge anything for that sort of thing, but uh, it typically uh, you know, is good for relationship building. Thanks, Alex, for talking to us today about value engineering. For Knowledge Counts, I'm Wendy Hobbs.